0: When we sat down to think about architecture, we basically punted on it uh, completely. But the thinking was that, well, we don't know. We can't predict what what this product is going to be uh, in the long run, which was true. But if we had maybe spent half a day thinking through like what what could limit limit us in the future? How might we be painting ourselves into a corner? What assumptions are we making that might be wrong? we might've saved ourselves a, a little bit of technical debt. My name is Valerie Kaufman. I'm CTO and co-founder of Swayable.
1: This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today, how Valerie Kaufman created a way to measure the persuasive impact of your messages. All this and more on Code Story. Valerie Kaufman has a family in San Francisco with two cats, both 18 pounds each, and two kids, the oldest being three and a half. So you could say she has a lot to juggle, even outside of a startup. Her family spends time outside in parks, the zoo, museums, etc. as much as she can since they are opening up again post-pandemic. She graduated from Cornell with her PhD in Theoretical Condensed Matter Physics, which I had to Google to understand. Prior to her current venture, she was the CTO and Chief Science Officer at Zometry, an on-demand marketplace for custom manufacturing, building their software team from scratch. She and her co-founders started their current venture by exploring why people resist believing scientifically backed factual information. She wanted to figure out which messages and stories were more effective at communicating these true facts. This is the creation story of Swayable.
0: Swayable is a data science platform for measuring the persuasive impact of advertisements. We use randomized control trial survey experiments to rigorously measure how an advertisement changes someone's opinions on the topic of the the advertisement. We've worked with many uh, political campaigns, um, and we're working more and more with a growing list of brands. We started by exploring a broad problem of why people resist believing things that are true. Um, One of the motivating issues was around climate change. Uh, Why do people not believe climate change when there's over that climate change is real and caused by humans when there's overwhelming evidence? And one of one of the ideas, among a few others, was using RCTs to test messages and, and stories and, and short videos or audio or text to see which messages and stories and images and audio are more effective. Through a series of you know, conversations with um, many customers, we identified you know one customer was interested in testing a set of, of advertisements. They're an agency that was building ads for convincing people that climate change is real. So, we had actually identified a customer who wanted to pay for a pilot um, before we even built it. And at that point, I was, I was actually on maternity leave <laughs> and we hadn't formed a company yet. So, we built a fabulously hacky prototype just to see can we even do this? Can we even pull this off? We weren't sure we, were, we would be able to. You know, the, this first client, they knew that they were taking a risk to see if it would work. And they paid us, you know, $5,000 to test seven or eight different clips and we thought we were gonna spend all of that on the data. So we, we ran a survey, our very first survey we ran on, on Mechanical Turk, because that was you know the most obvious place to start, really, um, that was accessible. And we gathered the data, and I basically took that data and downloaded it um, into a spreadsheet, and I analyzed it in basically a Jupyter notebook and that I wrote as a one-off notebook. And to our surprise and amazement, we were able to Detect a statistically significant movement in how people answered questions like, you know, on a scale of zero to 10, do you believe that climate change is real? So we were somewhat shocked because we weren't sure it was going to work. The other piece of it, the client facing piece of it, was uh, basically a pretty simple web interface that displayed those results. Um, we didn't even have a database at that point, we just used that sort of a flat file. <laughs> and and displayed the results um, so our very very first prototype was really laser focused on proving that we can even do this thing
1: let, let me let me switch gears then you proved that this could work by you know piecing together jupiter flat and uh, you uh, you know rendering to the front end tell me about the next phase the mvp how long did it take to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life
0: we had this prototype, we used that to apply to Y Combinator. So basically, we built the, the MVP during Y Combinator um, in the very beginning of, of 2018. So at this point, you know, I had officially joined as a co-founder, and we were starting to build out the real product. So, you know, after we moved to San Francisco and I sat down to write out a whole bunch of pivotal tickets, brand new, fresh project, and I found myself writing tickets like, a user should be able to create a survey, a user should be able to add a question, a user should be able to delete a question, et cetera. And I had this moment where I realized, okay, a whole lot of this stuff is kind of boring and we can, you know, hack it together on the back end somehow. The money page, the real thing that's most important where the customers are getting all of their value is the dashboard where they see their results. So we decided to just hack together whatever we we can for you know creating the surveys, setting it up, user logins, etc. Um, We used a a service called Auth0 um, at first to just sort of manage the authentication. And we decided to focus all of our energies on the data collection, the analysis, and the front-end. So the tools we were using, we basically took that notebook from the MVP and took it out of a notebook and started building out a real Python package, which can take the survey responses and generate the results and then we started building out a web application where people log in and they they basically go to their result pages Um, so they have you know if they have multiple tests they can see a list of those but all of the focus was really on building out the results page where people people get their their answers
1: so with any mvp you got to make certain decisions and trade-offs. And you started to kind of dig into those a little bit towards the end of your explanation. But tell me a little bit more about those trade-offs, either feature cuts or technical debt that you had to accept, um, and decisions and trade-offs you had to make and how you coped with them.
0: One of the big trade-offs we made was in the self-service nature of creating your survey. We still needed a way to discuss the survey design the experiment design with the client so a trade-off that we made was to create a nice well-designed uh google doc template essentially where the questions are listed and the process became one where we go over that doc with clients um, and they can comment on it. It actually had some nice features that they, they can leverage the collaborative benefits of, of Google Docs. And the, the trade-off on our end, the technical debt on our end, was now we've got to take that doc and put it into the system somehow. And there's been several iterations of that. One of them was early on, we, we had members of the team translating it into basically a JSON file that gets uploaded to a database or imported to the code. In the very early days, we for the first several clients, we didn't even have a fully functional database for everything. The results were a flat file for the first several customers. So there was some technical debt involved in um, retrofitting a database, basically, um, but we did that pretty early on. But the, the biggest trade-off has been uh, the internal tooling um, and the um, self-service, um, which is something we're still we're still working on.
1: What did you end up choosing from a database standpoint? Did you end up going SQL-based or doc-based, NoSQL? We're
0: using Mongo Atlas.
1: How has that transition been? You said you did it pretty quickly has it been a challenge or was it pretty easy step over to mongo
0: um it was it was straightforward to step over we definitely have been iterating on our our schema continuously i think the main challenge of of doing the step over was typical building the airplane while you fly it um starting the step over and then Making another change and then having to do that change twice until the transition was done.
1: so you got your working mVp. you're you're making some progress. How did you progress and mature the product from there? and And how did you build your roadmap and decide, okay, this is the next most important thing to build?
0: I think in the early days, a lot of of what we we started adding on, very quickly, we found out that people wanted powerful segmentation. Early on, a big focus was on adding more capabilities uh, to segment, to find uh, sub-segments of, um, of you know, the survey sample. Um, so all the possibilities. There's a numerical range. There's, you can do quantiles. You can do categorical segments. Um, you can create logical combinations of, of all of those. It took took a while to, to, to build that out. So very early on, that was just the top request from customers. Later on, we started to get questions about the sort of dominant feedback was, are my results good or bad? But essentially, what do these numbers actually mean? So I would say our, our product roadmap has been driven a lot by taking the various feedback we get and synthesizing it to find like what what is the overarching theme and then and then we build basically to solve that that sort of problem statement we try to find sort of the underlying problem statement of the synthesized feedback that we get so one theme has been segmentation another theme had been how do i even interpret this this dashboard how do i even interpret these results one very early version we we you know we have a lot of, we present a lot of bar charts. Um, one very early version had many different colors in it, and we found out that people expect the colors to mean something. They're distracted by different colors if they don't mean something. So we spent some time you know iterating on that. We also found that you know people open up this this dashboard and they see okay the baseline. Score is fifty point two, and my top-performing ad moved people by seven point eight points on a one hundred-point scale. Is that good or bad, right? So, after building up, you know, thousands of tests, we're able to offer uh, what we call benchmarks, which basically show how you rank compared to similar similar tests. So that really gets to the heart of: are the results good or bad?
1: So. Let's flip the team then. So, how did you go about building your team, and what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you?
0: You know, obviously, there's hard skills in the in the in the technical fields. One thing that we try to do when we're when we're looking for that is, you know, I don't copy code challenges off of LeetCode or whatever. You know, I'm not giving people sort of the same code challenges they get everywhere. So we try to make sure that the coding challenges that we're we we're, um, giving people are representative of what they would be doing, both because I wanted we want to you know vet people based on something that is closely aligned to what they'll do, but also you know fully recognizing that the job candidates are vetting us just as much as we're vetting them, and we want to get them excited about what they might be working on at swayable. So that's one part of it. Other things that we look for are, we, we like to see people who are motivated by the overarching um, mission of the business.
1: So is, is there any particular process you go through when you're talking to someone to, to gauge their interest or any reaction that shows you that, okay, this person is, is bought into what we're doing here
0: no I would say it varies you know with, with with each individual when I'm actively reaching out to people which is which is one part of the process I don't necessarily just put up a job description and then wait for people to apply um, I f- will frequently go on to a platform like AngelList or LinkedIn Y Combinator has a, a platform as well where I reach out to people. Um and I like to highlight who we've worked with. Um uh, I find that like talking about the clients that we've worked on and the overarching mission of the company is something that motivates the right people to 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 reply and 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 get excited about about a potential role with Swayable.
1: Let's flip to scalability. Did you build this to scale efficiently from day one or are you fighting this as you grow?
0: we explicitly were were not focused on scalability on day one and it's actually it's it's a somewhat contrarian advice uh that is circulated widely in the y combinator community uh they say do things that don't scale uh because in the early days of of uh trying to get product market fit it doesn't make sense to to be too focused on scalability so spending time talking to customers, there were some early versions of the segmentation were very unscalable.
1: You know, in the early days you didn't engineer it to where, uh, you didn't over-engineer it, which makes total sense. You kind of want to engineer as you grow. How are you addressing those problems today? What are the types of approaches you're taking or tools you're using?
0: It's a, it's a really good question because there's so so many different aspects to the scalability. It's hard to even know where to start. One of the areas, one one of the things that's really been interesting to see that we could not have foreseen, by the way, in the in the early days, is how um, things have scaled horizontally, basically within each individual test. And by that I mean, every content test has the pieces of content that are being tested. Uh, it could be we've done you know tests with one piece of content. We've done tests with you know twenty or thirty pieces of content then there are the metrics that you are measuring and then there's the segments essentially and in the early days we would typically test maybe three metrics and 10 different breakdowns of which are collections of segments you know age gender ethnicity etc but we found that the tests have gotten more complex over time so there's more and more metrics that people are are interested in looking at probing questions like Is that a leading indicator of that measure over there? Can we uh, understand why certain ads are more effective than others? But with that, there's been way more calculations to do. And so we're finding that, you know, what has been a background task, the time that it takes to do that, well, it expands. as As the test becomes more complex and there's more calculations, also the amount of data that comes out the other end. Uh, Sometimes, you know, a survey of 5,000 people will have way more than 5,000 different results, which are aggregate statistics because we're just slicing and dicing um, the data so many different ways. So some of the things that we've had to do to accommodate that have been um, the scalability. I mean, that have been the the database schema, updating that to accommodate that. Uh, If you remember... The uh, early versions used flat files for results. Well, that doesn't work in Mongo if your results are larger than 16 megabytes. That's a document size limit built into Mongo, which we hit. We hit until we, you know, revised the schema.
1: As you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of?
0: I would say uh, that I'm most proud of the actual impact that this product has has had, especially in the political space. Uh, we've worked with, you know, both Georgia runoff elections, which were quite close. You know, it's not unreasonable to think that we had a a, a role in that outcome.
1: So let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it.
0: That's a great question, because I think we've made a few mistakes. In the technical space, I think if I if I could go back in time, we might have spent a little bit of time thinking about the architecture and trying to anticipate um, in the early days. We, we think about architecture a lot now. But in the very early days, when we sat down to think about architecture, we basically punted on it uh, completely. But the thinking was that well, we don't know enough to to decide. We can't predict what what this product is going to be uh, in the long run, which was true. But if we had maybe spent half a day thinking through, like what what could limit limit us in the future? How might we be painting ourselves into a corner? What assumptions are we making that might be wrong? We might have saved ourselves a, a little bit of technical debt.
1: Well, this will be exciting. So tell me what the future looks like for your product and for your team.
0: The future is a lot of data science capabilities. We're building you know, data visualization capabilities and there's potential that that can be applied to more than content pre-testing. We recently have launched a new product line, effectively, which is a time series tracker survey. So this is a survey that it's not tied to content. It's not a randomized control trial, but it's ongoing. And so you can see a time series of how a metric is is tracking. We've gathered quite a bit of data over the last several months about how consumer attitudes are, are changing related to products um, and services that are affected by COVID. Um, so the likelihood that you would see a movie in a theater or fly on an airplane or shop in a shopping mall. We're also tracking the ESG perception. ESG stands for environmental, social and governance, tracking the perception of several hundred different brands and seven different verticals to see how people's perception of those brands change over time.
1: Well, let's switch to you. Who influences the way that you work? You know, CTO, an architect, really any person. Name a person you look up to and why.
0: Oh, it's hard to choose a single person. I think I've, I've learned a ton from every software engineer I've worked with. Um, in terms of software engineering, I've, I've learned a lot from, from software engineer. Every software engineer I've worked with, um, I've learned good and bad things over the last, you know, decade plus of of doing this stuff. I mean, I've also been um, influenced quite a bit um, by my co-founder James, and you know, learned a lot about sort of how to think about different aspects of the business by working working closely with him.
1: Well, we talked about a mistake, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach?
0: I think we may have taken a somewhat different approach to some of the internal tooling, potentially looked for more sort of -of out-of-the-box solutions for that, or started a little bit earlier on, on building our own. Um, internal tooling has definitely been kind of a, a pain point. There are some out of the box solutions. It's very hard to adapt those for a product that it has a lot of settings. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a fair amount of setup involved. Um, with the survey, you've got to add all the questions and then you've got to tie those questions to the metrics and the segments, etc. that you're tracking. So. The out-of-the-box solutions for that, which are sort of doing like crud on your database, they, they might work better for simpler products. Um, for this product, it's been kind of a pain point. So I might've searched a little more for, for different ones or potentially just bit the bullet and, and started building something like that from the beginning. It's hard to say, um, but we definitely put a lot of that off, put a lot of that work off in favor of building, like I said, the money page, <laughs> the, uh, the results uh, page, um, but, it, but it has been a, a pain point in terms of internal operations. I don't think it really affects customers as much, um, but internally it's a little bit difficult.
1: So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit?
0: One bit of advice is just never stop asking questions. I think it's tempting to get an idea and and run with it, but always be cognizant that you could have cognitive biases. Try to avoid them. Be aware of what the possible cognitive biases are to build build the best product.
1: That's great advice. Well, Valerie, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Swayable. Thank you. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to ten bucks a month.